Welcome to the HEC Constructor Cast, your place for the news and views relevant to the construction industry. My name is Scott Barry, your host for this episode. Uh, with me today is AGC's James Young, our Director of Congressional Relations for Labor, HR, Immigration, and Safety. Welcome, James. Thank you, Scott. So we're here to talk about multi-employer pension plans today. So a bit of a niche issue, but one that I think uh, means a lot to the people that it means a lot to. I think that's safe to say. I think anyone that's a signatory contractor is well-versed in multi-employer pension plans and the plans that they contribute to. Uh, the folks that are not signatory um, don't have a whole lot to worry about in this issue, but it certainly is a, uh, an important issue. It's an important issue today. It has been. Um, and it's also an important issue for the, uh, for the greater economy and for the taxpayer. So there's a lot of uh, ancillary uh, people that are impacted by this issue. Right, so it may not, you may not know it impacts you, but it definitely will impact you even if you're not a signatory contractor or could certainly have the ability to. Certainly could impact you and it certainly could impact the communities that you live in and, and impact the country. So let's start a few years ago. Uh, prior to 2014, what was sort of the state of pensions? What, what was going on? So for the last a couple of decades, we, we've seen pensions in this country or, or defined pension plans. Um, there's been less of a pickup rate of them, and, and the funding status of them have, have, they've seen some significant funding challenges in the last several years. So, I mean, defined benefit plans were very popular years ago and have become less popular as they become riskier and as employers transition to uh, more traditional 401k plans. There seems to be a movement in this country to define contribution of 401k plans. So uh, defined benefit plans, or as we call them in our industry, the multi-employer pension plans, um, have had funding challenges uh, over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, a lot of that has had to do um, with issues that you may not think uh, happen in construction, but trucking deregulation in the 1980s was a significant factor into the shape of pensions today. Um, and then also the recessions in, in, in the early 2000s and the mid to late 2000s had a, a very significant impact on today's multi-employer pension plan system. There was an effort in 2006 uh, that AGC was instrumental in, the Pension Protection Act of 2006, which helped pension plans survive the the early tech uh, bust in the uh, early 2000s. And, and when we passed that law in 2006, which created the zones for multi-employer pension plans that we're all familiar with, uh, they created a uh, nifty stoplight that was used as a, a messaging tool on Capitol Hill to help educate, educate the less sophisticated uh, uh, members and policymakers where, where, where anyone's familiar with the, with the red zones, the yellow zones, and the green zones. Uh, we thought at the end of 2006 we had solved the uh, pension issue or at least um, uh, at least helped the system for the future. Uh, then 2008 came and we saw some significant losses of investment returns uh, and in construction as everyone is well well versed we saw a significant downturn in the hours worked which have a direct correlation to the health of a pension plan. So I guess then uh Around that time was the creation of the National Coordinating Commission on Multi-Employer uh, 
pension plans? So, so really in 2006, uh, we got the Pension Protection Act. And then we worked in Congress uh, in 2010, and we got some small rifle shot pieces of legislation that really helped uh, the tax treatment of these plans. And that, that was not enough either. So in 2010, we thought we had um, gotten some beneficial uh, legislation passed. Uh, but in 2011, we realized what we had been doing was not enough, and we needed a fundamental uh, reform of the entire multi-employer pension plan system. Uh, we knew that there would be significant funding challenges down the road. Uh, we were told by high-ranking congressional uh, officials that a government bailout would not be forthcoming. Uh, at that time, there was legislation um, that had been proposed that would have would essentially have been a government bailout of the pension system. And, it, and it's funny, back then it would have cost somewhere around $10 billion. A government bailout today, and we can talk more about that, would be, um, I don't even know if you can quantify, it would be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, so so we, we found out in 2010 that a bailout was not coming. We were told by Republicans and Democrats and um, in, a, in a Democrat administration that a bailout was not coming. So we, we, uh, we, AGC was part of a group that was convened, uh, led by the NCCMP, or the National Coordinating Committee for Multi-Employer Plans, uh, convened a, a commission uh, that was made up of about 40 different stakeholders uh, that represented labor interest, uh, uh, employer organizations like AGC of America, uh, made up of large employers that contribute to multi-employer plans, and also part of that were actuaries and fund administrators that are involved in the day-to-day -day management of pension funds. We all sat around a table for, we started in, I guess it was August of 2011, and sat around a table for a good 18 months, uh, meeting one or two days a week, uh, one or two days a month uh, for 18 months, and towards the end we even met more than one or two days and what we, there was two real goals of this commission that labor and management had come to the table and could agree on. One, this is uh, labor's top priority, is we wanted to guarantee a retirement benefit for life uh, for the participants in the pension plan. We, did, we wanted to keep the sort of defined benefit model existing. Uh, we did not want to transition to a defined contribution plan. And then the second is, in and this was a top priority for the employer side representatives, but also the labor groups participating at the table recognized that we needed to minimize the risk uh, that employers face in these multi-employer plans. Under a, under a traditional defined benefit plan, the employer uh, assumes all the risk uh, or the burdens of funding the plan. So we wanted, to, we wanted to share some of that risk like you see in a defined contribution plan where the participant bears 100% of the risk uh, and the defined benefit plan, the employer uh, bared 100% of the risk. So, like I said, those were the two goals, uh, giving a lifetime of income security and then also sharing some of the risk were the two top goals of the commission. So we sat around the table um, and we talked about, about a lot of the challenges. One, we had to look and see what the fundamental problems with the system were uh, and whether they were small in nature or needed legislation or regulatory action. And two, we wanted to find a path forward for prospective service so that the system would be sustainable for the future. So after the commission comes out with its, its work product, its report, 
Uh, that results in writing the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014. Well, the, well, there was a couple of steps. Um, it, it was a long process. Throughout the commission, we were keeping policymakers in the loop. Um, but, but the result of the commission, there was really three overarching principles in the, in the commission's work product, which was uh, called solutions, not bailouts. And the reason we called it solutions, not bailouts at the time, like I said, is we were told that a bailout was not coming. So uh, what we were looking for were solutions. We were not looking for a government handout. Right, a path forward. We were looking for a path forward. And the three guiding principles of the report were one, is were some technical corrections that were, like, like it sounds, were very technical in nature, were very, um, were very non-controversial. These were technical corrections that should have uh, been done to the, uh, the Pension Protection Act of 2006. And the, and the second principle uh, was what became and what we knew at the time was the most controversial, and that was the ability to uh, modify benefits and modify the benefits of retirees. This was a this was something that um, there was legislation uh, that strictly prohibits doing that. Uh, it's the ERISA and a cutback law, and um, essentially, without modifying benefits, there was no path for sustainability. In a multi-employer pension plan, there's two options, or I guess there's three. Uh, one, if if a plan is severely underfunded. Uh, you can increase contributions, that being the first, you bring more money into the plan. Uh, the second is you reduce your liabilities or cut benefits. And then the third would be a, a infusion of cash uh, via uh, the government. That's well, the bailout. We, that's the bailout. And we knew the government infusion of cash was not coming. Uh, and we also know that uh, contributing employers were already at a level that they could not increase their contribution rates and continue to be competitive. Uh, in their industries. Uh, for example, um, you know, in our industry in construction, uh, the cost of being a uh, union construction company and competing with a open shop or non-union companies is very difficult in today's uh, day and age. So um, our contributing employers know that they cannot contribute any more on a per hour basis than they already are. So, uh, and, and our labor partners recognize that as well. Uh, if we start raising um, the wage package and the benefits package, they're going to become less competitive and it'll actually have a negative impact on the plan as fewer and fewer union construction firms win work. Uh, there'll be fewer man hours going into these plans and it'll actually have a negative impact by raising contribution rates, which sounds a little um, counterintuitive, but, but that's you know, what the models show you and, and that's what happens in reality. Uh, so the, the, the ability to modify benefits is really core to, to moving on to a path of sustainability. Um, and then the third, which uh, we can talk more about uh, later, is a, a new type of plan uh, for the future. Um, this is a hybrid plan between a defined contribution and a defined benefit plan. Uh, this is something that, that when AGC was sitting at the table was our top priority going into the negotiations. Uh, we, we, we knew the current system was unsustainable for today uh, and we wanted a path for the future that limited the risks uh, that employers face but also offer uh, a benefit to the participants. So we were very excited about uh, this new plan design. So these three elements, you got your technical corrections, your ability to modify benefits, 
and your hybrid or composite plans. That was the three things that came out of this um, solutions, not bailouts. Mm -hmm. What did the employer community and labor community come together to do with these three elements? Like, what was the result of that? So the three elements were um, all essentially agreed to at the table. And then what happened is uh, we worked with Congress to to take the three principles and, and, and turn that into a legislative vehicle or, or legislation. Um, so those three principles were were written into language and, and uh, drafted into a bill. Uh, and we worked, uh, I guess, um, so the commission, uh, we released our plan in February of 2013. Uh, we really looked to 2013 to move uh, this solutions, not bailouts. At the time, it did not have a name. Uh, we were just uh, really calling the legislation solutions, not bailouts. Uh, it was just you know the three principles. Uh, we were really targeting 2013 being an odd numbered year. It's a year that you tend to get more controversial uh, legislation enacted. Um, because there's not an election. Happening. Because there's not an election, correct. Uh, 2013 came and went. Uh, we continued to meet with Congress, continued to refine the legislation. During the course of this, there were six or seven congressional hearings uh, that touched on all three of these um, core principles. Uh, so it was well uh, debated and well vetted uh, by Congress. Uh, and, and those hearings helped form the legislation that ultimately uh, became part of a a larger end-of-year funding package at the end of 2014. And within that uh, legislation, there was the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014. Now, that legislation did not include all three principles from Solutions Not Bailouts. It included the technical corrections that were very uncontroversial, as, as we said, but also it included the ability to suspend benefits for deeply troubled plans. This was obviously uh, much more controversial, but it did have bipartisan support uh, because the folks that take an honest view of it, whether you're Republican or Democrat, recognize um, the suspension of benefits were something that would, would stop a plan from otherwise going insolvent and, and, and having a PBGC take them over. Um, a PBGC benefit, the maximum benefit from the Pension uh, Benefit Guarantee Corporation, is about $12,000 a year. Uh, and that's the maximum benefit you will receive. Uh, very few people have uh, the full service and the full 30 years required for that benefit. But that being said, if a plan uh, is able to uh, avoid the PBGC, they can provide a greater benefit than the PBGC can. And that's why Democrats really at the time uh, supported what we were doing and, and helped shepherd it through. Um, this is legislation that the White House or the Obama administration was well aware of. Uh, they provided input into it. You know, it, it was the best alternative out there. It, you know, it's never a good thing to talk about suspending someone's benefits, especially a retiree that's that was promised this benefit. It's kind of the, you know, sacred promise you don't touch someone's uh, pension. But ultimately, you know, the, the PBGC, the funding over there is in such a shape that, that what we wanted to do was provide the greatest benefit to the most amount of participants as possible. So looking at the uh, Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act 2014, so those two, the, the technical corrections and the benefit suspensions were part of it. Uh, the composite plans uh, that, that 
that these were the hybrid plans uh, between a defined contribution and defined benefit. Uh, they were named composite plans in the legislation. Uh, ultimately, were jettisoned at the last minute, um, really for jurisdictional reasons and political reasons. Uh, at the time, there was really no policy objections to the new plan design or composite plans, but ultimately they were not part of the package. After 2014, we've got two of the three main ideas that we wanted to accomplish are in law now. So now com composite plans are, are, are sort of hanging out there. Obviously, it seems like AGC has, has focused on trying to enact composite plans as part of its you know, pension agenda uh, in a post-2014 uh, world. So what has that been like? Well, we started, uh, you know, right after 2014, right after MEPRO, we hit the ground running trying to move the composite plans. Um, it's here we are in the nearly the middle of uh, 2016, and, uh, and and we're still trying to move the composite plans. It's been a little slower than we would have uh, liked or maybe had even anticipated, but a lot of things have happened in the last year and a half. There's been a number of trade bills that Congress has worked on and the tax writing committees have had to work on. Um, you know, we, we had another important uh, accomplishment here at AGC, the, uh, the highway bill. Uh, and the funding of the Highway Trust Fund took a lot of time by the tax writing committees and the financing committees. Uh, so we've, we've been slowed down a little bit. And also there was, uh, as everyone's aware, there was a shakeup in the congressional leadership. Uh, you know, Speaker Boehner left at the end of 2015 and, 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 and Speaker Ryan is there now. So we, we've had congressional changes, congressional leadership changes, committee changes. Really, we've had to spend the last year and a half or so really educating a lot of members of Congress and, and new congressional leaders on, on these priorities and really have had to do a lot more education than, than anyone would have anticipated at, in the beginning of 2015 or the beginning of the Congress. So we, you mentioned a little while ago about the PBGC, uh, and that, if I'm understanding correctly, acts sort of as insurance for if a, if a plan were to fail then the government steps in uh, with this insurance corporation, the PBGC, uh, and then that has a guaranteed um, like benefit rate, and that's the... It's about $12,000 a year. $12,000 a year. And so that is funded through premiums that are paid into this by employers, correct? So uh, the PBGC is, is the insurer of last resort for the multi-employer plan system. When, when multi-employer plans um, were established many, many years ago, it was thought these plans uh, could insure against themselves since they're multi-employer plans. But the PBGC was created as a guarantor of last resort. And plans pay a premium or an insurance fee to the PBGC on a per participant basis. Prior to 2014, that was, uh, I guess it was $13 per participant per year. Uh, the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014 uh, doubled that premium from 13 to $26 a year and has indexed it for inflation. I think this year it's now $27. Uh, so for every participant in a plan, the plan contributes now $27 uh, per participant, goes into the PBGC, and that helps the PBGC, helps them provide loans to plans that have gone insolvent, helps the PBGC um, with mergers and and, and it allows um, you know a struggling plan to merge with a healthier plan. That was something that that 
the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014 allowed. Uh, we, we haven't seen a lot of that, but in theory, that's where some of this money could be going towards. So, so that brings in about $250 million per year in funding. However, if we look at the PBGC funding or their solvency or their, um, their financial condition, the PBGC is about 40 or $50 billion upside down. So it's underfunded. It's underfunded by about $50 billion. A $27 premium is not going to turn that number around. Uh, the reason is there's some very large plans outstanding that are expected to hit the doorstep of the PBGC within the next 10 years. And that's how these um, how, that's how the government scores these type of programs is on 10-year budget windows. So there's been government studies. GAO has uh, investigated and looked into what would happen if these large plans were to fail. Um, and essentially what they would do is they would take the PBGC down close to zero. Um, the PBGC, if, if large plans that are expected to fail do fail, um, the $12,000 that they're guaranteeing now would uh, drop to about $100 per month uh, for individuals. So essentially, essentially the PBGC would be bankrupt. As of today, there's no sort of government intervention that would occur if that was to happen. So um, if there's really one large plan goes under, that could take away the last remaining safety net that exists in the government system for multi-employer pensions. That's exactly right. Uh, it, it will only take, you know, a very large plan that is, there are several out there expected that will take down the safety net. And there's um, more than 10 million participants covered by multi-employer plans. There's about 10 million participants in these. And it puts their sort of safety net in jeopardy as well. So this is an issue that will impact you know, individuals in every community across this country. So on the topic of large plans that may fail, uh, uh, the Central States Multi-Employer Pension Fund, uh, that has gone through a number of processes that were put in place by the 2014 Act to try and write itself. And it's now applied to the U.S. Treasury Department to modify its its benefit structure uh, in a way that would be more beneficial, that it would buy it some time and, and move it in a, in a more positive direction. What's happened with that? With the central states? With the plan? central states plan. So the central states plan is a is a large plan. It's a Teamster pension plan. Uh, it's largely a trucking plan. Uh, there are construction employers that do contribute or or are signatory with the Teamsters and and do have exposure to the Teamster Central States uh, Pension Fund. So that their fund uh, we've known for many years now. Uh, and like I said be, uh, very early uh, today is uh, trucking deregulation had a lot to do with this. There's very few uh, union trucking companies left in this country, um, which means there's less contributing employers into these plans. And a lot of the folks in plans like central states uh, no longer have an employer associated with them. They're called orphans. The employers that they worked for have since gone out of business. There's no contributing employers coming into the system. So the central states plan is very large. It's got uh, close to, it's over 400,000 participants um, and it's headed towards insolvency. So they were the first plan to apply uh, to the treasury department under the multi-employer pension reform act of 2014 that we've talked about. They were the first plan to apply to modify the benefits of the participants in the plans. Um, 
So there's 400,000 participants and the law created different it created different scales at, to the levels that you could modify benefits. So it protected vulnerable populations in these plans. So, so individuals over 80 years old, it would be very difficult to modify their benefits or, or surviving spouses uh, or, or dis, uh, disabled individuals or disabled participants. Uh, so the central states plan applied to Treasury back in, um, I guess it was back last fall. Uh, Treasury had been reviewing their application and just on um, uh, Friday, May, uh, May 5th, I guess it was, um, uh, made a decision whether they would allow central states to move forward uh, with uh, moving forward in the steps to modify benefits or would re reject it. The pension law requires, requires a review by Treasury uh, to either review or deny an application and in this case, Treasury viewed central states' application as being, as being deficient. They did not think the plan would survive, um, would not survive with the proposed benefit cuts they were making and disagreed on the actuarial methodology that the plan had used. Frankly, uh, AGC was a little disappointed or very disappointed in their decision. Uh, Treasury uh, had announced a week or two before their decision they had, they had changed the regulations and the rules for applying for suspension of benefits. So we, we, we view Treasury's, you know, kind of their uh, decision making here as a politically expedient. They really didn't make the tough decision that they were going to be forced to do. Uh, we think the election and the political calculations had a lot to do with it. And now that the central state's application has been rejected, um, from how I understand it, uh, the plan has got a very, very short window uh, before it reaches a point where it will head towards insolvency, which means the 400,000 participants in the plan will be cut down to the PBGC, PBGC level uh, probably within the next 10 years. Uh, when that happens, the entire PBGC uh, will also be insolvent as well. So this, it's a little too early to tell um, what's gonna happen. I, I guess central states has got has got two options here. One, they could uh, reapply to the Treasury Department, change their application, uh, which probably would require them to make um, even deeper cuts of the participants. Or second, they could do nothing and let the plan fail. Wow, neither really sounds like a good option. So I guess looking forward, is there any hope? I mean, if, if the big plan goes down and takes the PBGC with it, what next? Is the bailout an only option? And, you know, the bailout that we've already been told is not forthcoming? Or, you know, it, would composite plans uh, have averted this problem had they been <coughs> passed in 2014? Or So those are great questions. Um, central states had been telling Congress, there had been a number of uh, uh, Congress people, uh, Republican and Democrat, that have we're obviously concerned that had constituents involved in these plans. And anytime you talk about cutting the benefits of a retiree, it's a it's a bipartisan concern. Uh, but the plan had told Congress the only thing that that would help them would be a would be a government bailout of twelve billion dollars was the only thing that would advert a central state's collapse. Uh, so. Congress, uh, multiple members of Congress asked them what Congress could do. And central states responded multiple times telling Congress, 
a bailout with $12 billion is what they need. Um, obviously, Congress has not uh, appropriated $12 billion to one plan. And, and frankly, uh, I, I, I find it difficult to see how Congress bails out central states and writes them a $12 billion check because there's already been four other plans, uh, I guess now five other plans that have applied under the same uh, 2014 law to suspend benefits. Uh, those applications are still under review. So it sets up a slippery slope for Congress uh, if they bail out this one plan, uh, where, when do, where and when do they stop? There's uh, perhaps as many as 100 different plans expected or, or headed towards insolvency in the next couple of years that could apply for uh, these benefit reductions. It's difficult to see Congress writing a check for one plan and, and one trade being the Teamsters and not doing the same for all the other plans and trades that will follow suit. Um, like I said, when we when we did this legislation, this was the best alternative and, and guaranteed the best benefit. You know, whether it's 50 or $100 billion, it's very difficult to see Congress uh, appropriating those dollars to that plan. So where are we? Well, like I said, central states um, could reapply, uh, which I, I think is probably where they're headed, but if they reapply, the cuts are going to be that much, much worse. Um, I don't see Congress writing a $12 billion check this year um, for just one plan. Uh, uh, you have another couple plans um, that are over, you know, billions of dollars in exposure will be headed to the PBGC shortly that will also need the same sort of cash infusion. So that's it, difficult. So I guess we just keep pushing for composite plans then. So, right. So, so what does this mean for composite plans? Well, composite plans um, is another part of multi-employer pension reform. Um, and, and a lot of the same players on Capitol Hill uh, that are involved in the benefit suspensions are also uh, involved in the composite plan. So this is another issue. I, I talked about the change in leadership uh, being a being a factor in um, moving composite plans slower. It's a little uncertain how this will all play out. The benefits of composite plans, um, with them, there's no sort of unfunded liabilities, which is the problem with the current defined benefit system. So if we were to see composite plans in the future, we view them as as a way to avoid this type of plan insolvency in the future. Uh, composite plans don't allow masses and masses of unfunded liabilities to, to build up that require you to recalibrate your contributions and your benefits on an annual basis. So you can't overpromise benefits. And under the current system, the, the plans were overpromising benefits that they could not pay. And, and now we're in a situation in this country where where it's very uncertain whether those benefits will be there for you when you retire. Wow. Well, I think one other point that's important is the fallout of central states and other plans is what does it do to the PBGC? We talked about these large plans taking down the PBGC. Um, so there, there could be an effort underway to increase funding for the PBGC. Uh, the president's most recent budget um, called on increased funding and, and increased funding means increasing PBGC premiums. Um, 
And, and like I said earlier, we just saw a doubling of those premiums, 100% increase from 13 to $26. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's going to be on the table. Uh, this is something that AGC uh, certainly does not support, uh, is increasing premiums to a level that, that are actually detrimental on the plans. And also, a lot of our plans in the construction industry are, are fiscally sound. So this would be a case of our plans or the, or the building trades bailing out these transportation plans or the Teamster plans. So it, it creates sort of a, it creates sort of an interesting scenario among the uh, labor community and and the employers in these different sort of industries uh, moving forward. But it's something we're going to keep a close eye on. AGC. Um, we, we've been opposed to massive premium increases in the past. Uh, we, we will continue to be in the future. All right. Well, I suppose we'll have to have you back on in a while to see uh, where all this has ended up. I'd like to thank AGC's James Young uh, for helping to educate us on this topic and uh, certainly opened my eyes to some of the impacts beyond uh, signatory contractors, but to the larger economy and to uh, communities as a whole. So thanks for joining us and thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast.